Amen. Well, well, may that be the desire of our hearts this day, that we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling, walk in a manner worthy of our being called saints and followers and slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible, please open with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, today we'll be looking at verses 8 through 12. And we're going to call this, um, this sermon, our, our time of study today, it's peaceful living in an ungodly world. Peaceful living in an ungodly world. As we'll see in the text, this is kind of a summarizing paragraph. That's how Peter begins, to, to sum it up. It, it's kind of, though, more than a, a short summary. It's kind of like an in-process review an in-process summary, an in-process report, because Peter has a lot to say to kind of sum up what he's been writing about. If you think back to chapter 2, verse 11, you recall that we've been looking at how the saints are to live before the world, how we are to let our lights so shine before men that we, the world will see our good works and will glorify our Father who is in heaven. We've looked at how we are to live in submission to the civil authorities that the Lord has placed over us, how we are to live in submission to those who are our masters, our employers, our supervisors in the workplace. We have seen that wives are to live in a submissive way to their husbands, and that husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way loving their wives as Christ has loved the church. And sandwiched in between all of that, we had that glorious look at the end of chapter 2 where Peter wrote of the example of Christ. For Christ is our great example in all things, in how he suffered, in how he submitted, and in how he is the sovereign ruler and head of the church. So now as we come to this kind of summary, as, as Peter puts it, we're going to see kind of the how and the why we should pursue this peaceful living with an ungodly world. The how and the why of how we pursue and why we pursue peace in an ungodly world. So with that, let's look to our text and read it. Then we want to go before the Lord and ask his help as we study his word. I ask that you please stand with me as we give attention to the reading of God's word. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 8, this is the holy and inerrant and inspired word of God. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, and not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life, to love, and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now I ask that you bow with me as we go before the Lord in prayer. Our God, you are great and greatly to be praised. What a wondrous mystery is the cross, the work of Christ in our redemption that we are able to be cleansed of sin and made and counted righteous through the work of one, the work of one redeeming the many. Lord, what does that point to but the greatness of the one, the greatness of Christ? Lord, when we survey the wondrous cross, how can we but respond with a life given to you in thanksgiving and praise and sacrifice? The love of Christ at the cross demands our lives, our souls, and our everything. 
Lord, what a glorious fountain it is at the cross that is filled with the blood of the Savior that pours out to cover the sins of his people. And Lord, what a glorious day it will be when our lisping and stammering and stuttering tongues will come before your presence, be perfected, have those veils taken away from our eyes, the sin that holds our, our souls back in praise and worship be, be stripped and taken away, and we will behold your face. Lord, what a glorious day that will be. But Lord, in the meantime, as we long for that glorious day, we know and we understand from your word that you have left us here on this earth, with and for a purpose. That is the purpose of glorifying your name among the world. And you give us instruction as to how we should do that. You lay forth for us in your word instruction as to how we might live in a way that is pleasing and honoring and glorifying to you. So, Lord, I ask that you would now write your word upon our hearts. Would you cause your spirit to come and to move in power among us, for the, the strength and the will of men will fail in this endeavor. But the power of your spirit never fails. So would you work in us by your spirit, causing us to see our sin and to repent of that sin, would you cause us to be broken? Would you call us to cause us to be pressed on and pressed forward as we strive to walk in a manner worthy of our calling? Would you, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear? and hearts that are ready and eager to receive and respond to your truth. Lord, none of this can happen in our own strength and in our own doing. But Lord, by your grace, you have, you can, and you will accomplish great things among us. Lord, we pray that you would bless the teaching and preaching of your word. May it find a home in our hearts. Would you write your truth upon our hearts and cause us to live in a way that honors and glorifies you. Cause us to live in a way that makes much of our Savior for worthy is the Lamb. Ask this in his name. Amen. Peter tells us here that we are to live in peace with all people, both God's saints and the world. And we do that by following the righteous and the humble example of Jesus Christ and not compromising as it pertains to righteous living. Live in peace with all people by following the humble and righteous example of Christ. That is the purpose of the text before us. That is Peter's charge as he writes to these suffering believers to live at peace with all people by imitating Christ. The path to biblical peace is not one of ease. It is not one of passivity. The path to peace with all people is not the path of least resistance. Though that might be the easiest path, that is not the path to biblical peace. Rather, we are called to firmly and unwaveringly stand upon the truth. But we're called to do so with compassion, with kind hearts, with sympathetic hearts, with gentleness, with love, with humility, and with patience. We must be uncompromising with the truth, but we must, dear church, we must be known by love and humility. So you have these balancing truths. 
that you are a lion with the truth. You stand boldly. You stand firmly. But you're marked by the things that we see in this passage. You're known by being a loving and kind and gentle and humble saint. Now, this passage is a little bit difficult to break down. Um, typically, it's, it's easiest to go straight through from the first verse to the final of a passage. And how Peter writes, it's a little bit difficult to make an outline. So I, I fell back on a, a kind of common Bible study tool or method. It, it's derived from the acronym of the word SPEC, S-P-E-C-K. You ask the question, are there sins to avoid? Are there promises to claim? Are there examples to follow? Are there commands to obey? Or is there knowledge of God to understand? And so that's kind of going to be the way that we look at this passage. We're not going to follow it in that order, but we just kind of want to answer those questions as we move through this and try to understand how we live peaceably in an ungodly world while not compromising on the call to live righteously. So we begin in verse 8 with this list of commands to follow, commands to obey. Peter says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. So to sum up, finally, in the end, this word marks kind of a completion of thought where Peter is starting to say, okay, we're, we're getting ready to move on from one section to the next, but Peter has a lot to say. This summary lasts really from chapter 3, verse 8, all the way into chapter 4. So it's a long summary, but there's a lot to say as he kind of drives home the application of the section where he's written of how we live out our faith before the world. So there's five exhortations in this verse as to how we should treat, how we should live with others, and the overall context points to how we should live with the world, but Peter begins with how we live within the church, how we live with our fellow brothers and sisters. He begins by saying, all of you be harmonious. All of you be of one understanding. All of you be united in purpose, united in desire, united in your goals. The, the charge to unity here obviously indicates that Peter is writing about our, our unity with the saints. Because as those who are called out from the world, we cannot have this harmony, this unity, this oneness of mind with the world. We are light within darkness. We cannot be united to the world. We can live in harmony and in peace with the world, but we live in unity, in oneness of mind, in oneness of understanding, and oneness of purpose with our fellow saints. And we live together with a united purpose and a united goal before the world, and that is when the arrows begin to fly, when the attacks start coming, when the faith gets hard, when living as a Christian becomes difficult, we all have one singular purpose, and that is to proclaim the gospel of Christ. That is how we live, even with different ideas, different convictions. You have Presbyterians, and Baptists, and you know, we might just keep the circle kind of close like that with, with how broad people will go today. But you have various opinions and various convictions about things, but we have but one purpose if we are truly in the faith, and that is to proclaim the gospel of Christ. We face common attacks. We face common hatreds because the world hates the gospel. The world hates the call to repent, to be separated from sin, to let go of sin, and to submit their lives to Christ. And so if we have that common enemy, if we face that common attack, we have but one common goal, and that is to make Christ known. Think about this. You could illustrate this idea with the picture of an army. In a battle, the army is here in a location, and they have enemies surrounding them. 
on every side. The enemies are enclosing upon them. They're bringing various attacks against them. And so the army has two choices. They can fight back with every man for himself, every member of that army, going and doing whatever they might wish to defend themselves and to fight back against their enemy. Or they can submit themselves to their commander. They can do exactly their assigned duty. They can do what they are called to do and take a united approach to fighting against the enemy. I think we would all agree that that united approach is much better served to, to actually achieve success. That, that they do the things that they are trained to do. A sniper is not going to handle the duties of a close hand-to-hand combat soldier. They do what they are trained and gifted and ready and assigned to do. They submit themselves to the instructions and to the command of their leader. And that picture then applies and crosses over to the church. The church is comprised of God's people gifted in specific ways by the Lord and we submit ourselves to our head, Jesus Christ, when we fight spiritual battles. We are united in purpose and we serve under a joint authority and his name is Jesus. And he tells us how we are to live. He tells us how we are to fight. He leads us out in the battle and we follow that king we follow that commander and that head we follow him together we do what he has called us to do we have but one purpose to follow and to proclaim our king peter then says you are to be harmonious but you're also to be sympathetic you're to be sympathetic literally that means you are to suffer with one another. You're to be united to your fellow saints in their suffering. Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he's talking about the the church as, as a body with spiritual gifts. He said, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, All the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. If one member suffers, you are to have sympathy for that one member, and you come alongside that member, and you suffer with it. That means you don't suffer from afar. You don't only offer sympathetic thoughts, but you come alongside of them and join with them in their suffering. That's what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. You come and stand and sit and join with your fellow believers, whether they're in a time of rejoicing and you overflow with joy with and for them, or if they're in a time of sorrow and difficulty and trial and tribulation. And then you come and you weep and you weep and you weep. You stay alongside of them. This means that you have the type of relationship with your fellow saints that you know and you feel their emotions. You may have heard it said that that a parent is only as happy as their most sad child. If you're a parent, you kind of understand that. When, When you have one child that is successful and happy and one who is struggling and upset and going through difficulty as a parent, you're joined with that one who is going through difficulty. The same applies to to Christianity, to our fellowship with our fellow saints. We rejoice with the saints who rejoice, but when another saint is suffering and walking through hardship, we're right there alongside of them to pick them up, to carry them along, to, to give them a shoulder to cry on, and to weep with them as they weep and mourn and suffer. We draw strength in those numbers together. There's only one who could suffer alone, and his name again is Jesus Christ. He went to the cross, and he did suffer alone, but that is because he was God in human flesh. We are not designed and able to do that. 
suffer, be sympathetic to your fellow saints. This is not a generic, you know, how's the weather type of relationship, but these are relationships whereby there is sacrificial investment of time and energy and resources. There is mutual understanding, there is mutual care, and there is genuine love. Genuine love. You love those whom you spend time with and invest in and pray for and give yourself to. And speaking of love, that flows into the next of Peter's exhortations. Be harmonious, sympathetic, and brotherly. Really, that is be show brotherly love. Show brotherly love. I think we all understand the idea of what brotherly love kind of is. It's that love that you share with a close friend or a sibling, a brother or sister, and that is what you're called to show your fellow saints. But remembering our context, let's broaden that out a little bit. We're to show this type of love to the world as well. You know, that's always, it's always a balance that we have to strike, that we have to understand because Scripture gives us specific instruction. Paul wrote in Galatians 6.10 that while we have opportunity, we must do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So we do good to all but we do good especially to the household of the faith. We're to show brotherly love to all people, but especially to our fellow saints. And that's where we can go as far as to say that you cannot properly love those who are in the world if you don't properly love those who are within the church. How can you love those who are on the pathway to hell if you don't even love those who are on the pathway to heaven in God's presence and all eternity with you? So love your fellow saints and then let that love spill out and carry you out into the world to love and to proclaim Christ. We love our fellow saints by proclaiming the truth of God's word and living according to the truth of God's word. And we love the world in the same manner by aligning ourselves to the commands of Scripture and by preaching and proclaiming Christ. You love a fellow saint by pointing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. You love one who is on the pathway to hell by proclaiming and pointing them to Christ. So we are to be united and sympathetic and loving, and then Peter says we are also to be kind-hearted kind-hearted. We are to have compassion. We are to have good and tender care and affections towards one another. It's that, it's the heart behind those actions of sympathy that we talked about a moment ago. Calvin commented here, he said that this means that we are not only to help our brethren and to relieve their miseries, but also to bear with their infirmities. We're to have patient compassion. Because when people suffer, they need you often. When people go through hardship, they need a lot of help because our flesh is weak. We are weak and frail and fragile. And so you must have this patient compassion that causes you to desire to come alongside your fellow saints. We could say here that the idea of being sympathetic speaks to our action of suffering with our fellow saints. And to be kind-hearted speaks of the heart that presses that action into service. So there we make the important point that we don't just do the right thing with a heart that is removed or that is indifferent to doing that right thing. We also don't just have a right heart and then not do what the right thing is. It's a both and. Now, again, as I, you've probably heard me say before, you always do the right thing, whether or not your heart is into it. But if your heart is not in it, 
you do the right thing and then you repent of your evil and wicked heart, ask the Lord to change and ask his forgiveness for not being devoted to him and to others in the way that you should be. But proper actions detach from a heart of love and devotion for and to the Lord is really just mere rule following, mere legalism. It does not bring full honor to the Lord. You must be both sympathetic and kind-hearted. You must love God and keep his commandments. And when you love God, when you keep his commandments, they're not burdensome. When you love your fellow saints and have a kind heart toward them, it is but natural to suffer with them, to show them genuine sympathy. So then Peter moves on really and kind of pulls all of this together in the next statement. Sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Humble in spirit. This means to be lowly-minded about yourself. Um, I ran across when I was studying, uh, I ran across a kind of new definition to me that I think might help paint a picture of what humility is and, and why it's difficult to be humble. One Greek dictionary said that humility means to have a deep sense of one's littleness, a deep sense of your own littleness, a, a deep understanding of your insignificance, a great understanding of how small you are, how unimportant you are. That kind of helps paint the picture. You, you see the contrast in that, right? That, that to be humble, you broadly and largely and greatly know that you are nothing, you're little, you're unimportant, you are insignificant. And that helps us understand, I think, why humility is so unnatural to our flesh. Humility is, is really the most unnatural thing to which the Lord calls us, maybe outside, of course, just general godliness. And in specific terms, humility cuts against the grain of everything that our flesh does and is. But that's the point. That's the point. The Christian life cuts against the ver very fabric of fleshliness. The Christian life is the antithesis of living according to the flesh. If it's fleshly, then it is not godly, and we should flee from it with haste. If it is a desire of the flesh, it is not a work of the Spirit, and we must put off the deeds and the desires of the flesh and walk by the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit is to be humble. Your flesh would have you make little of your failings and much of your successes. But Scripture, biblical humility, would have you glorify God alone in your successes and take responsibility for your sins. That's what it means to be humble in spirit, that you have a small view of yourself. When things go well, when things go right, you give glory to the only one to whom glory is due, the Lord God himself. And when you sin, when you blow it, you own up to it, you fess up to it, you take responsibility, you repent of your sin, and then you change. You do better. You walk by the spirit and cut off the arm of the flesh. So this is really, these, these are the keys to peaceful living in an ungodly world. That you live in harmony and in sympathy and with brotherly love and with kind-hearted compassion and ultimately with a humble spirit. And really these have to be built in reverse. It starts with a humble spirit. The humble spirit then leads you to having kind-hearted compassion. Kind-hearted compassion then reveals itself in brotherly love and sympathetic coming alongside one another and suffering with one another. And then when you've suffered, when you've been through the fires, when you've been through the fights, when you've been through the trials with your fellow saints, guess what you do? You walk in harmony. 
You walk in unity. You have but one goal and one desire. You're all on the same page. You're all singing from the same sheet of music, and you walk together. It all starts with humility. It all starts with humility. The first requirement, the the first prerequisite to Christian unity is a humble spirit. And the world knows the church, those who are of Christ, by their unity and by their love for one another. So that's the commands to obey. And then Peter, in verse 9, starts in on the sins that we are to avoid. He says, do not return evil for evil or insult for insult. Do not return evil for evil or insult for insult. This, this should kind of be starting to be beaten in through our heads from the end of chapter 2. That's what Christ did. He, when he suffered, he didn't return insult for insult. He did not threaten in return. He did not revile. He kept suffering quietly and trusting himself to the just judge who is his father. So when you think about that, think about what are the world's rules about suffering? The world says you look out for yourself. The world says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And and if something is taken from you, you go take it back tenfold if you so desire. The world's response to evil and insult is self-protection and self-preservation. And that's the fleshly response even to proper confrontation, to proper accountability. It's excuse-making. It is trying to find ways to get yourself off the hook, to protect yourself and to preserve yourself. And all that is is fleshliness. All that is is a love of sin and desire to push and to press yourself forward. Peter says we are to mark and we are to avoid these sins. Paul said in Romans 12, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Simply, the world will hate you and the world will revile you. The world will insult you and persecute you and speak all kinds of evil things against you. But you, dear saint, do not return evil for evil or insult for insult. Mark those things as sin and avoid them. Mark those sins and avoid them. Put off fleshliness. Do not return evil from the world with evil from a child of God. Do not be insulted and slandered and hated for the sake of Christ and then bow up against those things for which you suffer for the name of Christ. Submit to that suffering. Bring yourself under it, for you have a great example. Peter presses forward in verse 9 and shows us the example to follow. Do not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So you ask, where is the example in that? You were called to this very purpose. Recall back to 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this very purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. You were called to the very purpose in 1 Peter 2, 21, and you were called to this very purpose in chapter 3, verse 9. You were called to suffer And in suffering, you're called to follow his example. Now, this is difficult to consider. When you you really think about what we're called to do in following the example of Christ as he suffered, as he was getting ready to go to the cross, and as he went to the cross... I think in our flesh, we always want to put bounds and limitations uh, on how far we're willing to go. You know, the person said this about me, and, and I'll let that slide, but, you know, if they go this far, it's over. I, I'm, I'm going to them. I'm confronting it. It's on. We're, we're going to talk about it, right? 
It, we're going to handle it. That's what the flesh does in us. But what does Scripture say? Turn back with me, if you will, to Luke. Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. I want to read several verses there, so if you turn, turn back with me, you can read along to, to help, help you follow along here. Luke chapter 6, and we want to look at verses 27 through 36. This is Jesus speaking, and he gives us instruction as to this very idea, as how we follow the example of, of Christ and do not return evil for evil and insult for insult. Luke 6, verse 27. Jesus said, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. That's going to be important. Mark that, and we'll come back to it. Jesus continues, verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same. But love your enemies. Do good. And lend without expecting in return. And your reward in heaven will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to the ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. There is so much tie into what Peter writes in our passage. Jesus clearly says, love and pray for and do good. To those who mistreat you. He really says that with no ifs, no ands, and no buts. You love, you pray for, and you do good to those who mistreat you, even if they mistreat you and defraud you and treat you horribly. That's what Jesus says to do. Not really a whole lot of qualifiers. Do good to them, love them, and pray for them. And so we can just kind of leave that and, and, and say kind of period, case closed. That must be our heart in responding to wrong treatment. We must desire to love and pray for and do good to those who mistreat us. But let's also remember that Jesus in verse 31 said, Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Now this is where there becomes some liberality in, in where and how we respond. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you are a child of the Lord, the way that you want others to treat you is in a way that leads to your eternal good, your growth in Christ, your being removed from sin. Jesus says to treat others that same way. So that means you confront sin. It means you hold others accountable. If you're receiving mistreatment from a fellow saint, you hold them accountable in light of the truth and the authority of God's word. If you are suffering at the hands of the world, yes, you receive insult. You do not return evil for evil or threat for threat, but you do respond by proclaiming Christ, by proclaiming the gospel. You respond by confronting sin and praying for the souls of those who are attacking and maligning and slandering and coming up against you. Just ask yourself the question, when's the last time that I prayed for one of my enemies? We all have enemies, right? We all have those who treat us in ways that we do not desire. When's the last time you prayed for an enemy? Not just praying that they would be convicted by the Lord, but praying that, praying that the Lord would bless them by bringing them out of sin so that they might walk in communion with him. Do you confront sins with others because you confront it so that they'll stop sinning against you? 
Or do you confront sin in others because they're sinning against a holy God and you want to re restore them to right relationship with God? That is the example of Christ to follow. We don't respond for our own sake. We respond for the sake of the glory of God and the eternal good of the other person. We must follow the example of our Savior. While suffering, he uttered no threats and he did not revile. But dear friends, understand that Jesus did not use that quietness, that lack of reviling in return as an excuse or as a crutch or as a reason to fail to confront sin. The reason the world hated Jesus was because he confronted sin constantly, perfect, holy, and righteous, what else would Jesus do but stand up and proclaim himself to those who hated him? There's an example of that. When Jesus was on trial, um, this was Luke chapter 22, I pulled this from, and before the Sanhedrin, they, they asked Jesus if he was the Christ. Are you the Christ? And his response is very interesting. He said, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. They say, are you the Christ? And wanting an answer and knowing that, you know, maybe he could get himself off the hook with the right answer. Jesus gives no answer. What he does is says, from now on, I, the Son of Man, will be seated at the right hand of God. When Jesus had an opportunity to respond, he proclaimed himself. When we have opportunity to respond, we preach and proclaim Christ. And so why do we do this? Why do we follow this example? Because there's a promise of the Lord as we follow his example. Coming back to 1 Peter 3. Picking up towards the end of verse 9, he says, You're called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. That's a promise of the Lord. For the one who desires life and love and to see good days, he must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. You submit to the example of Christ because the Lord promises that you will inherit a blessing. Verses 10 and 11 really are a repeating of what was commanded in verse 8 and what he tells us not to do in verse 9. He says, if you do the things you are to do, you avoid the sins that you are to avoid, that you will inherit a blessing. You will know life and love and you will see good days. But we must understand that promise comes only to those who walk in obedience. The promise comes when we obey. The promise comes when we submit to the Lordship of Christ, repent of our sins, and turn away from that sin, and live in a way that honors and glorifies Him. Now to this promise, what, what does it mean that we will see life and love in good days, I think really we can kind of build these up to be kind of a, a singular idea, a singular promise. MacArthur notes that that life here speaks of the experience and the fullness of life lived in the Lord. The, the goodness, the promise of life that we experience when we walk with the Lord is that we know and that we have His presence. That we live and we walk with hope. That we know that this world is not our eternal home, but that all of the suffering and hardship, all of the difficulties of this life are only preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Our ultimate fulfillment of this life comes in eternity, but we know God's presence in this life. If you walk with him, you will know and you will experience his presence. You will receive life, and love is similar to walk with the Lord is to know the fullness of his love. As you get closer to the Lord, you understand more and more of the depth with which he loves us. The, the love that he displayed for us in sending his son to go and die on the cross for us. 
God's love is displayed in, in our union and our fellowship with our fellow saints. We love one another, and that, that in a way displays the love of God for us. Jesus prayed that we would be one just as he and the Father are one, that we would know that love by the way that we love one another. And we experience goodness of days. We see good days when we walk with the Lord. So that's the promise of the Lord. We all should seek the favor of God. And it's one of, the, one of those things that I think kind of, we have to be careful with, with all the heresy and all the bad teaching of, of seeking the favor of God. We have to be careful that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater in that that we do seek the favor of God. We want to receive God's blessing. We want to please him. We want him to be pleased with us and to bestow his blessings and to place his favor upon us. And we do that by walking in obedience, by putting off sin and walking in submission to his commands. So we come then to verse 12. Verse 12, and really this is kind of the, the so what of the passage. It, it kind of is our, our final thrust to the finish line where we see this knowledge and this understanding of God. He says, for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So we've seen, seen this call, right, to walk in harmony and in love and sympathy and kind-heartedness and humility of heart, to avoid the sin of returning evil for evil and insult for insult. We're called to follow the example of Christ, to give our lives, to serve him, and to follow in his footsteps, to imitate Christ and then we see that we're promised this blessing of life and love and to see good days if we do that. But why do we have confidence? Why do we have confidence in that promise? How do we cling to that promise of blessing when we're being hated, when we're being reviled, when we're walking through the darkest and stormiest of trials and seasons? How do we cling to that promise of God that obedience will yield his favor? We stand firm because God promises that his eyes are toward the righteous. We remain because he promises that his ears attend to our prayers. We remain because he tells us that he is set against, he is opposed to those who do evil. When you're hated, you stand firm because the Lord says he is with you and he is opposed to those who are hating and reviling and causing your suffering. We stand firm and we remain, dear friends, because the Lord is faithful to his promises. Do you hear that and do you really get that? The Lord is faithful to his promises. Calvin would say that this ought to be a consolation to us, sufficient to mitigate all evils that we are looked upon by the Lord and so that he will bring us help in due time. Friends, we're not sheep without a protecting and providing shepherd. No, we are sheep of the good shepherd. We're sheep of the chief shepherd. We are his flock that he loves, that he cares for, and to which he tends. He will protect. He will provide. He will guard. He will keep. And he will eternally deliver. He has provided. He provided the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, pure, spotless, unblemished, perfect, holy, laid upon that altar to be slain, and we respond by crying out, worthy is the Lamb who was slain 
The Lord has provided. The Lord has guarded. Satan's attacks are constant. I've been studying in chapter 5 of 1 Peter over the last few weeks, and it's just one of the sobering reminders as Peter brings this epistle to a close is that Satan's attacks are constant. But the Lord's grace always prevails. He always guards. He always protects. He always sees you through. He has indeed kept you, and he will keep you. He has put his spirit within you as a seal and as a promise and as a guarantee of your inheritance that he will see you through to the last day when he perfects your salvation. So he's provided, he has guarded, he has kept, and he has delivered. The whole of salvation is done. In God's view, from God's perspective, the work is finished. He has delivered you from the penalty and the power of sin through Christ. And dear friend, press on because one day you will be delivered from the very presence of that sin. You will, the, the power is broken. Sin's hold on you is over. The penalty, the price has already been paid. But one glorious day, you will be free of its presence. Do you not long for that day? Do you not desire to be free of sin and not deal with the effects of a fallen creation that was cursed when sin entered the world? That is your hope, that one day the presence of sin will be forever, forever and ever and ever gone and defeated. So dear friend, continue on in righteousness because the eye of the Lord is upon you. You may be facing great enemies, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. So we, as the saints of God's people, the, the saints of God and his people, we must strive for peace in an ungodly world. We must strive to, to walk in the things that Peter has outlined, love and harmony and peace and humility. We must show the love of Christ and we must look to his example and follow in his steps. Dear friends, his eyes are towards you and his grace is sufficient for you. His grace is sufficient. Praise be to God. Close by reading chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Keep your behavior excellent. Because the world sees, and as you live out your faith that is in Christ and showcase the transformation that comes through him, the world sees. And the Lord promises that there will be those who are saved because they have observed your good and excellent conduct and behavior. Strive for peaceful living in an ungodly world so that those who are lost can come to Christ and that regardless of that salvation... His name will be glorified through the way that you live. May the word again, Lord again write his word upon our hearts. And may we be transformed, walking by the Spirit, to bring him all honor and glory and praise. Let's close in prayer.